And then afterwards, I went up and spoke with Wendell Berry. And I was like, hey, you know, I don't know if you remember me, but we shared these letters back and forth. And hey, guess what? Like, I did what I said I was going to do. Like, I didn't go into a lot of debt. I'm taking care of my family with the carpentry work. And I'm building up my farm business. And I'm segueing into full-time farming. And I'm on course to be full-time farming in about a year. I had this spine-tingling experience where he sort of pumped his fist after this sort of sedate poetry reading, and he was like, Yes! That's how you do it! That's how you do it! Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. I'm here with Jesse Strait, chief mad farmer at Whiffletree Farm in Warrington, Virginia. Jesse is one of the leading mad farmers in the country. Uh, He's part of a second generation that's been inspired by people like Wendell Berry and Joel Saladin and is running a very successful operation that started out raising primarily chickens and now does pigs, cattle, and a number of other things that we'll be hearing about. And it's profitable, and it is serving the community. So, Jesse, welcome. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. Jesse, once upon a time, you wrote a letter to Wendell Berry. What did you say, and how did he respond? So I had sort of been hooked on his fiction, and I, for about a year, I just read every piece of fiction he'd ever written, and it really grabbed me. And I think I was a certain place in my life and had certain inclinations that, you know, what he was saying was exactly kind of what I needed to hear at the time. And it was very compelling. Uh, it was articulating things that I couldn't have articulated, but I was hungry for. And so that just got me going down a certain path uh, and very much the path I'm on now So part of that was actually thinking about farming as a career. And, you know, I was visiting lots of farmers and I was reading lots of books. I had written him a letter, uh, one, just to thank him for his writing. And then two, to sort of run past him some of my ideas. And I was sensitive to the pitfall of being starry-eyed and naive and someone who didn't grow up in a farming family and, and just being foolish. So I was sensitive to that. And I sort of taking that into consideration as I did my investigations and, and then also in my letter to Wendell and was explained to him how I'd been sort of doing all this reading and visiting all these farms. And I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to, you know, take on a big mortgage and, you know, take all these risky moves and that would have been naive, but just sort of saying, you know, like, this is something I'm really considering, and I'm you know, guessing that both with your farming background and then I'm sure not the first person to write you a letter like this, you know, what are your recommendations? Just sort of kind of get some, some wisdom from someone that, like I would even some, any other farmer. But obviously, you know, you are engaging a world of non-farmers with these really compelling mission of 
of good agriculture. And so I'm sure you're dealing with these kinds of letters and people. So anyway, I went in with that and he wrote me back a letter that was very surprising for me. And it was very dismissive, you know, you should not go into farming. (laughs) And um, that was the short of it was like, you should not go into farming. And I thought that was just very surprising to get from Wendell Berry. And why not? What were his reasons? Yeah. So I think it wasn't a long letter and I'm sure he gets a lot of letters, so I don't blame him for that. But I think as I remember it right, I think he kind of thought that I was maybe more naive than I thought I was. And, um, and so he was, he was saying, you're going to fail. You're going to be unhappy. You're not set up well for this and don't bring on misery. And so then, you know, I wrote him back another letter. I think my pride was a little bit hurt because I, I felt like he'd spoke to me like a child. He thought I was more naive than I thought I was. And how old were you at this time? <laughs> um, let's see here. I was probably 24, 25 or something like that. Right. Okay. So I was really old and mature. Yeah. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> so anyway, I came back at him. I was like, hey, buddy, you know, like I'm not. I'm not joking around here and like, I'm not making pie in the sky plans. I'm making real plans. And like, I, I have a plan and it's not crazy. And here's why it's not crazy. And, um, and why are you telling me not to farm? You're Wendell Berry. Gosh, darn it. So I essentially wrote him a letter back saying that. And then, um, he wrote me back a letter basically saying like, if you really want to farm, you won't listen to what I say, which was like, <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of funny and, 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 and kind of, um, and also just very Wendell Berryan. He's funny in his roundabout ways, you know? He, he says a lot, but then sometimes when you try and nail him down on something, he's, he's kind of, uh, he doesn't like to give strong prescriptions. Besides, you know, writing about farming and small communities, he's famous for this early essay, Why I Don't Use a Computer. Yeah. And yet, wasn't one of his responses to you typed on a computer? Yeah, it, I mean, it was typed and printed off of I mean, I guess it could have been a word processor, but it was not a typewriter. Yeah. You know, I don't know if he had someone do it for him or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, it was a, bit, was a bit funny. Yeah, a bit disillusioning too, right? No, you know, actually later on, it kind of came full circle because later on I went and heard him read some poetry. I think you remember when he came to UVA and he had a new book of poetry and he had sort of a private reading and I was lucky enough to be invited. So it was a smaller group of, I don't know, 60 people or something. And he read the poetry and then afterwards I went up and spoke with him and I was like, hey, you know, I don't know if you remember me, but we shared these letters back and forth and, and you know, hey, guess what? Like I did what I said I was going to do. Like I didn't go into a lot of debt. I have uh, work as doing carpentry work. I'm you know, taking care of my family with the carpentry work and I'm building up my farm business and I'm segueing into full-time farming. And, you know, I hope to be, I'm on course to, you know, be full-time farming in about a year. I had this spine tingling experience where he sort of pumped his fist after this sort of sedate poetry reading. And he was like, yes, that's how you do it. That's how you do it. (laughs) And, um, so, uh, so it was really rewarding because, you know, I think in his defense, he was really protecting against those people who sort of in the passion of the moment, you know, and they have five kids and they have a good job and they're used to a certain quality of life, et cetera, and they go and take out a million-dollar mortgage on a farm and they go bankrupt and they get divorced and everything falls apart. And I think 
Wendell Berry would feel really bad if he didn't do his part to dissuade those kind of family destructive decisions based on impassioned, naive, sort of Wendell Berry-inspired plans. So anyway, I think he's concerned about having that kind of effect on people who don't know what they're getting into. But then he was really happy when he heard how I was going about it and how I had sort of Joel Salatin as a mentor and I, was, I wasn't going into debt and I was doing direct marketing and I was you know, doing all these things that showed that there was hope and that I wasn't jeopardizing my family and all that kind of stuff. Right. And just to back up a little bit before we get into what's happened since then, I've known you and your wife, Liz, for a long time. And at this time, when you're talking about writing these letters to, to Wendell Berry, farming was one of, like, it seemed like a, a dozen uh, career options for you, all of which you seemed equally passionate about. And your experience is one that a lot of my college students uh, share and and certainly recent graduates share. Looking back, how do you think back on the discovery of vocation? And do you have advice that you would that you would give to people in a similar situation? I remember getting together with you, Ryan and Ross one time, um, I believe it was on the lawn at UVA. And it was sort of like a hash out session. It was like, all right, I'm sick of this. I got to figure this out. Let's put our heads together. And we're going to like, figure it out, figure out what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> and like we had, I'm sure we had a good conversation, but like, I don't think it really felt to like to me that I moved it, moved the ball forward at all. And that was like my situation, I would say, from 17 to 27 is, for better or worse, you know, my work in life was very much at the forefront of my mind. That was always like a big deal to me. I really wanted to have my work be an integrated and coherent part of my life. So I, I really wanted to not have it be the case where I'm checking the box off, paying the bills and coming home and compartmentalizing, you know, the work time is totally separate and just a sort of necessary evil and check it off and take care of the family. And of course that sounds, can sound very precious because of course it's very noble and good to, and, and most people don't have the privilege I have, but it's very noble and good to just take care of your family. And that's, that's, that's great. But you know, for what it's for what it's worth, if I could have more than that, I wanted to, and I was eager to get started. So every sort of minute passing made the dilemma and the stagnation all the more unbearable. So I just desperately wanted to get working on my project. I wanted to dig in and get started, and I felt like I was just spinning my wheels and sort of just feeling my way around in the dark, I really felt like this was a problem I had no way of answering. I, I didn't feel like any of these things people do really had any traction, you know, taking like these personality tests or taking these sort of vocational things. Like it was all just that had, that, that had no purchase with me that, that got me nowhere. And I was sick of talking about it. I was sick of thinking about it. I was just sick of everything about it. And I was so despairing of ever, I, I never thought that I would ever not be like that. <laughs> you know, I just thought like this was going to be my miserable fate of just wanting to get to work and always sort of spinning my wheels and at a loss and just 
second guessing myself at every step. And at what point then did some kind of clarity begin to emerge? You remember our friend, Father Minnick, the retired Episcopal priest. I was going to him occasionally for spiritual direction. And of course, this was something that we were talking about. And he was very adamant that I needed to ask God to tell me what he wanted, what his will was, and that I needed to make time and space to listen and to be quiet. And I'm very much a person that has a hard time with that. I would much rather like polish my boots than sit still. (laughs) I would rather do anything than not do something. So that was a difficult challenge for me and I think appropriate. That's maybe part of my, to your question, that's like part of my advice is that I think if I had been Catholic at the time, I would recommend Eucharistic adoration and silent uh, meditation and prayer and explicitly asking God for his will and talking to wise uh, friends and mentors that you respect. So those are things I would recommend. And, and, I, and I, I really do feel like how the story went for me is very miraculous. Like I mentioned, there was at least a decade there where I was in that, that state I described. And like you mentioned, I was thinking about you know, audio documentary work. I was thinking about becoming a professor in religious studies, about becoming an Episcopal priest, about probably uh, construction and carpentry, and probably some other things I've since forgotten. You were you were going to create a, a music and arts festival. Oh yeah, yeah, that I'm sure. And and at one point there was going to be a a school that was integrated into agriculture and all kinds of things yes. like this. So anyway, you know, all over the place. And so I. Just, I, I never thought that I would be where I am now, where I am totally at peace with my work, and I, I love my work, and I can honestly say that I have no second thoughts, which like maybe is maybe is a fault of mine, you know, maybe there's something weird about that, but for my 25 year old self to hear my 38 year old self say that. He would have been like, you're totally lying. That is not true. But it really is true that I, as miraculous as it is, have no second thoughts. And I've never once sort of looked over my shoulder. Maybe like sort of a a moment of the greatest clarity I remember was uh, Liz, myself, and our new baby, Josephine, were going flying out west to visit my brother for Christmas. And I was sitting next to my sister on the plane. I was reading one of Joel Salden's books. And I remember just sort of like looking up and it's one of those times when you sort of like say something before you think it or you think it by saying it. And I remember just saying to my sister, I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I like almost sort of heard myself from the third perspective say that and, you know, kind of agreeing with myself. I was like, yeah, yeah, I am going to do this. Yeah, that's right. And I remember that being a moment when I was, you know, whatever parts of consciousness and subconsciousness came together, it was a moment of, of decision and of, you know, hearing. And I don't think I could have articulated to my sister at that moment why it was so compelling in that moment. But nonetheless, in retrospect, you know, of course, I see all the, the patterns of my past and the parts of my personality and the, the things that have have been and have become important to me and how that's all come together and made a lot of sense with, with this life and work. 
And Joel Saladin is the founder of Polyface Farms outside of Stanton, Virginia. Uh, he is the subject of, I think, four best-selling books by now, plus three documentaries, I think, movie documentaries, and is an active blogger and himself has written... How many books has he written now? I couldn't tell you, but it's probably like in the 15 or so range. Right. So some of his first books were blueprints for, you know, if you want to start a successful farm, how do you do that? Could you just quickly bring us up to speed then, like how you got from wanting to start a farm to where you are now, kind of milestones? Sure. So we were living and working in Charlottesville, Virginia. And in 2009, we moved back to my hometown of Warrington to live on a rented piece of land, about seven acres to basically begin. And so we just started with meat chickens and we, you know, just did a very small amount. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just, I basically sort of was working out of Joel's books and taking day trips to Polyface and talking to Joel on the phone and emails and letters and all that. And yeah, so we started there and um, we just slowly built up our skills and our production and our customer base. And we added on lane hens and then we added on pigs and then we added on turkeys and then we added on beef cattle. And then we you know, needed more land and we rented pasture off site. And then in 2012, we eventually moved to our home farm now, Wiffle Tree Farm. And, and we've been here since 2012. And, you know, we're now have, I guess, uh, four people on staff and three to five interns and some part-time help as well. And then we do about 15,000 meat chickens a year. And we have about 2,000 lane hens and do about seven, 800 turkeys for Thanksgiving and slaughter about 100, 100 plus head of cattle a year and about 200 pigs a year. Um, to just give a sense of the the production. And then, you know, we sell through a store on our farm and then we do these monthly neighborhood deliveries where we deliver to people's neighborhoods and they pick up from a host family. And then we sell to wholesale customers like restaurants. And uh, so our our reach is from Maryland, D.C., Northern Virginia, and down to Central Virginia. And what what are the principles? I mean, you're you didn't set out to start an industrial farm, right? Even though your production is, is large now, it's nothing like that. And it's limited. So you're not organic. Like what, what are, what are the basic principles? I mean, our size would be laughable to uh, an industrial farm. It's very small, but we are sort of not rinky dink. So we provide a lot of families and a lot of restaurants um, with food. So yeah, in terms of our farm practices, fundamentally, our main principle is to observe natural biological systems and to try and imitate and replicate and participate in those systems. And what would be one example of that? The one example that I, I always go to first is movement. So it seems kind of simple, but if you think about it, animals in nature are always on the move. There, there's no animals in the wild that would naturally raise their hand and uh, say, hey, let's all get together and live in this 2,000 square foot area and just poop and eat on the same spot and uh, forget about the other you know, 500 square miles. Let's just all hang out here. It would be so much better. And of course, that doesn't happen because animals are wiser than that. And they know that if they hang out and muck around in the same spot, you know, they're, they're going to stress out their immune system because of the pathogens and uh, that are going to have 
an easy host. Um, so whether that's bacteria or viruses or parasites or even predators, you, you make life easy on all those pathogens by staying still. And movement makes you a difficult host. And you want to be a difficult host. So those animals are on the move because it's better for them to be on clean ground. They don't want to be mucking around in their own feces. And also, the clean and healthiest food, and grass and forages and et cetera, are the stuff they haven't sat on, pooped on, and chewed on already. That's what the land wants too. The land wants to be stepped on, pooped on, and chewed on, or the plants at least, but it doesn't want that 365 days a year. And if it did that, it would just turn into a desert or you know, just eroded, compacted soil. So it wants that biological stimulant. It wants that grazing. It wants that tillage. It, that, that energizes it and feeds the soil microbes and brings uh, good bacterial life to the soil and to the plants. But it needs time to rest and recuperate. So all that to say, that's a really big principle for us. Because once you get that down, so many other things fall into place. And and so is is this why I pay the like fifty cents extra per dozen to get the cage free eggs at the grocery store? <laughs> Pushing my buttons. So are 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 you saying that movement is not involved with the cage free eggs? The whole virtue of movement is movement off of actual living soil and plants onto actual living soil and plants, and that's not what happens when you buy cage free eggs. You buy hens that can freely move from one piece of concrete to another piece of concrete. It's unfortunately, it's bad faith marketing where you buy the, the carton and it has the picture of the pasture and it says cage free and you're supposed to think about hens on grass, but what it just means is those hens aren't in a cage in a building, they're just in a building. That gets to a point which I was trying to to get to, which is, Movement is one of our biggest ways in which we get in line with natural biological systems and those cycles that plants and animals are made by their nature to be in cycle with, with each other. That's the hardest for an industrial food system to, to do. Like They can swap out their feed and give them a feed that's a organic feed or it doesn't have antibiotics or that, you know, that, that's, e that's easily swapped. But to then get one of those poultry houses that's 300 yards long and, and hook that up to a tractor and drag that to fresh pasture, like that's just not going to happen. Industrial food systems love concrete, and concrete does not love to be moved. And industrial food systems like to control. So, and movement means you have to give up control because when you have movement, that means you're probably not necessarily tied to all the nice fancy electrical gadgets like feed augers and things like that that, that save labor. Um, and you probably have a, a, a structure that's maybe a little bit more vulnerable to weather events or to predators, things like that. So it takes more skill to read the weather, to, to understand how to deal with predators. So it's not just sort of like a dummy proof. You know, it, movement means that you are a choreographer and the animals are your dancers and the pasture is your stage, and the sun and rain are, and the seasons are part of your music. So what, is, what does this choreography look like on a typical day at Wilful Tree Farm? The team gets together at 6 to sort of do a, like a 10-minute powwow and kind of go through the different things we got to get done that day and pointers and who's doing what and that kind of stuff. And, um, but then we'll go out and we'll move all the broilers to fresh pasture. So, you know, that's about 2,500 
chickens that's getting moved to fresh pasture every morning. And then we'll move our lane hens to fresh pasture twice a week in these about half acre paddocks that we create with mobile electrified poultry fencing. And they have these, you know, these eggmobiles, we call them sort of wagons that are shelters and have their nest boxes and uh, things like that. So we are, you know, moving the the meat chickens, the lane hens to fresh pasture. Uh, Likewise, the turkeys, when they're out on pasture, as we get closer to Thanksgiving and all that. And then we're moving our pigs with electric fencing, you know, at least every two weeks to fresh ground. And then our cows we're moving every day or sometimes as much as twice a day to fresh small paddocks. So everything is just always on the move. And it's really satisfying because when you actually get out there and do it, it's so evident that it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the land. It's a good thing for the animals. And when you, you know, open that electric wire and you let the cows run into the untouched, lush, beautiful pasture that's not been picked over and they get to have their feast for the next 12 or 24 hours on clean ground with, with beautiful, clean food. Uh, not mucking around in old, muddy, manure spots or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's common sense to see that this is a place where an animal has the best chance for being healthy and, and being happy and thriving. And so what are the interactions? I mean, you're you're moving each class of animals for their own sake, but there are also interactions between the different types of animals, right? How does that work? For example, the cattle are happy with grass, that's, you know, two to four feet tall, you know, they, they can get in there. They're the size of the animal and have the type of mouth and digestive system that can handle that kind of grass. So they get in there and they stomp on grass and that their hoof impact forces that litter from the grass into the soil and contacts the soil. And that feeds the soil microbes because as it turns out, those soil microbes don't get to eat unless some of that green matter actually touches the soil. And so an important part of the the cattle's interaction with all these systems is to actually just get in there and stomp on things. And that stomping also does other interesting things where it's creating small divots in the soil. You know, when you have a thousand pound animal with four pointy hooves, those make these little micro pools where you actually capture more water and less water runs off and you can have more infiltration of water into the soil, which again is something the soil microbes and plants need to, to be productive. So that's, that's the cattle come through. Well, the chickens, you know, a chicken does not have the beak or the digestive system to handle taking on a four-foot, stemmy, stalky, starchy grass plant. What a chicken really wants is that really supple, soft, tender leaf. And that's what it wants to eat, and that's what it can handle eating. So, you know, poultry really prefer younger, tender, shorter plants. So you get in there with the cows and you, you stomp around and you graze and you knock it down. And then we'll come in there later with the poultry and they'll come after those younger shoots and those more tender shoots and they can actually handle that. And at the same time, they're going through those cow patties and there's and if you time it right, there's some really delicious fly larvae in those patties. So they're very eagerly scratching through those cow patties and, and getting out their little treasures of grubs and and fly larvae. And while they're doing that, they're also, of course, integrating that cow patty into the soil. And so you might have seen, you know, farmers driving tractors around fields with a big chain net behind the tractor. And the point of that is to knock those cow patties 
into the soil and help integrate that into the soil as opposed to have a, a lumpy field where those cow patties aren't, you know, really doing a gr- as good of a job as they could be with fertilizing because it's too concentrated in one cow patty spot. Well, we never have to do that because that's what the chickens do for us. So they're in there decreasing the fly population, which is a stress on the cattle. And they're also integrating those cow patties into the soil. And they're also utilizing growth off that pasture that otherwise the cattle wouldn't utilize. And they're also putting down their own manure, which has its own spectrum of benefits that's complementary to the herbivores, to the, to the cattle. And so, you know, just by that example, in terms of looking at, you know, the cattle, their relationship to the grass and soil and microbes and the, the poultry and their relation to all the above and the cattle, you can see a bit of how those things all are in a dance with each other. There's a kind of biblical beauty and harmony and simplicity to what you're describing. I wonder, though, thinking about this in terms of, you know, theology and, and, and ethics, when we consider where we're living in the modern world with vastly larger population than during biblical times, and uh, so pressures on needing to, to feed close to 7 billion people and growing, and also pressures on land use and the, the need to have trees there that are going to soak up ozone gases and instead of pasture land. Even though this sounds so sustainable, isn't this a kind of luxury that is actually promoting a larger unsustainability? There's actually nothing that is more productive to sequester carbon and create biomass than a well-managed pasture. We can make things more productive. We can increase photosynthesis. We can increase carbon sequestration through really intelligent management. A forest cannot, through photosynthesis, capture and utilize as much carbon and create as much biomass in the soil as well-managed pasture. Basically, grasses are race cars, and they love sun, and they love capturing nutrients and putting it into the soil. And they only are a well-performed race car when they have those animals to help them go through those cycles by grazing, by uh, stompage, tilling, and, and the, the relationship that those soil microbes need those animals as well. And the plants need to be grazed as well for them to stay in those sort of adolescent growth phases that they are really just going crazy in photosynthesis and in uh, sequestering carbon. I don't know if you've seen the study, but there's a a fellow uh, pasture-based farmer down in Georgia, White Oak Pastures, where they had a a carbon audit done. The same company that audited them also did Impossible Burger. And White Oak Pastures is, I forget what, what the percentage is, but they're sequestering a significant more carbon than they're using and in grazing all this chicken, egg, turkey, pork, and beef, you know, and lamb and goat and things that, you know, the same kind of things we're doing with the same kind of models. And the same, you know, firm that audited them also did the Impossible Burger, and the Impossible Burger, you know, uh, is, you know, pretty much right on par with the rest of the industrial food system in terms of their carbon impact. So they're, they're, net, they're net producers of, of carbon? Yeah, so they're, they're net producers, whereas White Oak Pastures is a net consumer or, or capturer of, of carbon. So, you know, these systems are putting carbon into the soil. And they're doing it because everything is happy and is roaring along. And at the end of the day, you know, we only get what the sun gives us. 
and you only can actually can only effectively capture all this beautiful and abundant energy that we get, you know, 16 hours a day or whatever it is, if you're managing your plants and your soils and your animals well to set them up to just stay busy photosynthesizing. And that's what you want to do. You want to just, there's all this beautiful, abundant energy coming out of the sky and we mostly waste it and don't take advantage of it. But just through some simple observations of natural systems and how plants and animals and soils like to be in relation to each other, you know, we can essentially sort of turn on the race car and get roaring away and can dump lots and lots of carbon, beautiful carbon into our soils. And uh, we have less, you know, flooding, less runoff, capture more water, make the soil microbes happy, make more productive grasslands that make more food. So that's where, you know, hope lies in a long-term sustainable system. So to come at this from another direction then, granting that part of your argument, one of the major economic considerations that economists raise about various proposals to mitigate climate change is that these mitigation efforts might be affordable to rich countries, but they're not affordable to poor countries and that poor countries are going to be impoverished. And, you know, wherever you stand on on that particular argument, I think I just want to bring it up as an analogy here. And and the analogous argument is that, okay, this is this is great. It's a sustainable way, but it's expensive. And as Christians, we have an obligation to consider the poor first and the poor's ability to feed their families, um, to afford to feed their families. How do you think through that aspect of affordability? Isn't this just a, a luxury of rich, educated East Coast and West Coast elites? Yeah, of course, that is like on its face, a pretty tricky question to answer. I might put it back to you, which is in this way, and not to say that I sort of have all the answers in heart and how to concretely deliver the goods, but I'll give you some points to, to, to go on. So one is, I would say, first of all, we have to remember that our industrial food system is not that old. So, you know, we might think this is the status quo, but let's remember that in terms of like history of human civilization, it's, it's not the status quo. And we can, you know, of course you have to parse through the different farming practices and their advent and all that stuff. But, you know, setting that aside, so the second point I would say is if you're going to sort of bring up the point of, you know, as Christians, you know, we have an obligation to the poor, I would say I would make a similar argument that as Christians, we have an obligation to not exploit the poor and the vulnerable. And, and right now, our industrial food system is propped up on a system of exploiting the weak and the vulnerable. And it, what it does is, you know, it exploits the land in, in poisoning and in, in, in robbing fertility and not putting fertility into the land. And it exploits the people. So, you know, these farmers that have zero leverage to um, monopolistic corporations that control the sales outlet and control the market, you know, they dictate to the farmer what they will pay the farmer. And the farmer is under the burden of debt and expensive infrastructure that's required by the corporation. And so they're at their mercy and, and they have very little leverage and 
and they have been given very poor circumstances. So they're being exploited. Many of the people that work in the industrial food system, whether that's processing plants, et cetera, you know, are, are people that are, uh, don't have a lot of options and are being exploited. And in some cases, illegal aliens that um, are being, you know, who are especially in vulnerable situations to be exploited. The, our, our country is being exploited in the form of tax subsidies that, you know, again, the, that sort of uh, centralization of power and in the industrialized food system has been able to lobby for itself. So that's, you know, that's taxpayers are being exploited. And then the eaters are being exploited because the industrial food system has done a good job of accomplishing its goals. And, you know, its goals are, you know, convenience and, and cheapness. And so it's done that, but to the exclusion of whether the food is healthy and much less healthy for the land or uh, the animals or anything like that, but even just healthy for the eaters, I think most people would agree that that's not the highest priority of the industrial food system is to think about bringing to the table the healthiest food. That's So in that way, the eaters are being exploited. Basically, there's all these members that are being affected by the industrial food system that are being exploited, and they are because they're vulnerable, um, and they, they can be. So, you know, it wouldn't be justified as Christians to say, well, we should... Feed, we should feed the poor by exploiting the poor. So that, that doesn't make sense as a good solution. And to the other point, there's a way in which when you buy that industrial food at the grocery store, you're only paying for part of the price. Like I said, part of the price is being picked up by taxpayers. Part of the price will be picked up by future generations as they try and clean out the Mississippi Delta or the Chesapeake Bay or the topsoil that's eroded in the Midwest and no longer can grow crops in 50 years or whatever the time it is, there's a way in which when you go and buy that inexpensive food, you're just not paying for all of it. And you're asking for other people to pay for the rest of it. There's a, a justice or an injustice there that's not right. And you know, if we're trying to go at this as through a Christian ethics, you know, that, that's, that's not just. I think even if there are all of these injustices, One of the great achievements of the modern industrial food system is its stability. So we don't have famines in the developed world like we used to. However, I think a lot of people have been recognizing some vulnerabilities there since the coronavirus. What should we be seeing in the mainstream industrial food system that is now becoming apparent because of, you know, supply bottlenecks and and so on. The system has been very good at providing cheap food and and convenience to get that food. But to do that, it's had to have a long supply chain because you have to get that supply chain long enough away from us to where you can get, we can pay people a lot less than you'd pay us to do the work. So you got to get supply chains that go abroad to where you can pay people less to do it. So that means a long supply chain. It also means Um, You have to have a really sophisticated supply chain to have really low inventory. So, you know, a grocery store is not going to have, you know, more than two days of food or or whatever it is that they they aim for. And that, of course, low inventory systems mean um, less expensive systems mean cheaper food. So, again, it's this very sophisticated system of emphasizing cheapness and convenience. But in that, there's an embedded vulnerability that's inherent with a long supply chain and inherent with a system that doesn't have a lot of 
inventory back up. And so I think, you know, this coronavirus experience where, you know, there's a person who's going to, you know, a white collar job with a nice house and a nice car. And then in, in the course of two weeks, they find themselves in an empty grocery store, you know, fighting over a can of beans, the last can of beans. And they have these kind of worst case scenario fears in their mind about how bad is this going to get? And now am I going to get to the point where I'm, you know, having a hard time feeding my family? I have to think that that person is going to have the kind of thoughts of like, goodness gracious, like this is America. What is going, why can't we do better than this? And in this coronavirus experience, we essentially haven't had really that much of an impact on the supply chain itself. We just had a run on the bank and the pipeline wasn't fat enough to keep, to keep up with the run on the bank. So like we haven't even touched like the, the apocalyptic worst case scenario of an actual, you know, disruption of the supply chain itself. We just had a supply chain that was too lean and and sophisticated to be able to keep up with a run on the bank. So all that to say is I think that this experience, you know, and, and of course we went through it, we've gone through it now with this and, you know, hopefully we'll get out of this and, and things will get back to normal. But if we don't change anything about the system, you know, there's not really a great reason to say that this is, isn't likely going to happen to us again. And there's all kinds of things that can disrupt society to, to create a, an analogous situation and, you know, I'd have to think that this is planting a seed in people's mind. Like, I really, like, I, what would, what would that, that, you know, upper middle class, white collar job with a nice house and nice cars who finds himself in an empty grocery store, like, how much would he pay or how much inconvenience would he be willing to, to submit himself to, to not go through that on a every other year basis or wh- whatever our new, our new normal is? I'm hoping that basically, like, It'll be a wake-up call in terms of just our cultural priorities of cheapness and convenience over stability and health. Right. So these are the kinds of arguments that for Whole Foods shoppers, New York Times readers, these are, uh, even if they're new arguments, are going to come across as, I think, somewhat compelling. However, you you don't really inhabit that world yourself. You go to a fairly traditional Catholic church in the Diocese of Arlington. And my experience of of these types of suburban, more conservative, traditional Christian circles is that people tend to shop at Costco rather than Whole Foods. They tend to shop at Sam's Club rather than the farmer's market. What kinds of arguments have you found resonate with people who maybe feel a little even just culturally averse to shopping at your store who might feel like to shop at your store is is almost like subscribing to the New York Times. What's the kind of theological cultural spin that you see emerging that would make it so that Christians should be at the forefront of this movement and not following along? So, I mean, we have a, a comically diverse customer base where we will have the blue-collar Catholic family with 12 kids come in and buy a whole bunch of whole chickens and eggs from us. And then we'll have the double income liberal Northern Virginia customer as well, side by side. I don't know if I've had terribly great success in terms of persuading the people you're talking about, you know, sort of those, those, you know, fellow parishioners of ours at St. John's that have always bought from us, 
was not because I convinced them, you know, and the ones who we count as good family friends of ours who rarely or never buy from us, I've not had a lot, I've not had a huge impact on them. <laughs> and of course, I try to like not be obnoxious about like talking about food all the time. So there's that. But I think that some of the reasons I see why people, in a sense, get out of, you know, break their category where it's the sort of the like you mentioned, the conservative at Costco and, and the liberal at Whole Foods or the liberal at the farmer's market. I think, you know, the, the couple of reasons that come to mind that make someone sort of be the weirdo that doesn't fit in those categories would be health issues. You know, we have families where they just sort of hit the wall with themselves or their children and they, they start doing some research and they start learning about the conventional food and what it has and what it doesn't have. And they see results when they, whatever health issue. So that's obviously like, that's a very strong motivator and that'll make a parent make decisions they wouldn't otherwise make when they're trust, you know, sort of desperately trying to figure out what's going on with their health or their children's health. The other thing would just be if people learn more about the, the conventional food system and the injustices involved, once you kind of see how this is how this is being um, facilitated and basically ex exploitation of land, animals, people, communities, taxpayers, etc. Then that's a motivation for people of goodwill who are like, you know what, I don't want to, I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to be facilitating that. That's not the world I want, and it's not consistent with my Christian or Catholic ethics. Yeah, I bought uh, steaks for my son Augustine's birthday a couple months ago and they were grass-fed steaks at Whole Foods. What's the difference between, is there a difference between the steaks I bought there and steaks yeah. I would buy from your so, store? So, you know, unfortunately, like this conversation gets into the weeds about labeling and what labels mean and don't mean. So, you know, grass-fed, the label that grass-fed allows for 60 days of feeding grain at the end of the animal's life. So, most people, you know, don't know that and that's a lot of time to feed a lot of grain and totally changes the gut of the animal and um, and the health of the food. So that'd be like one example. So this is this is what is technically, according to the whatever the certifying bodies are. This is this is what they say the limits are to uh, putting that label on something. Yep, you can feed grain for sixty days and put a grass fed label on it. So and you do you do yeah. you not grain finish your cattle? No, no, they're just completely grass. So. You know, that would be one example where, you know, a customer would be like, what? I didn't know that. Why do they say grass-fed if it's, if it's grass-fed and corn? And then the other, another example would be the one we talked about before, which is the cage freeze. Bill, so, so why doesn't, why doesn't uh, Aldi and Whole Foods buy from you? Well, I think because basically the customers haven't demanded it because I think like the tricky marketing has mostly placated customers. They said, oh, well, here's, you know cage-free eggs and they're $3 a dozen, I'm happy with, I'll buy for that. And, and then, you know, when they, when they, you know, say experiment with the local farmer's eggs and it's $6 a dozen and it's, you know, pasture raised and the, these are cage-free with a pretty picture of pasture and that's pasture raised with a pretty picture of pasture, you know, but this one's half the price. Okay. So I think it's, you know, a lack of the customer's understanding and I don't, you know, you know, and, and, and to, for good reason, because I think the marketing is tricky. And so what's your business model then by contrast? Yeah. So basically an important part of our business model is that we do not sell to a corporation that 
basically markets our stuff for us. So we do the whole thing. You know, we, we raise the animal, we process the animal, we package the animal, we sell it directly to the customer and deliver it to the customer, deal with all the communication and all that stuff. So, so of course it means like you have to be willing to do that part of the work, but that does a lot of good things in my mind. So, you know, in particular connection to the, the strain of this conversation, it allows me to not be beholden to a corporation that says, you know, like Purdue or Tyson's or whatever. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm no, I'm now free of that uh, sort of endangered servitude where, you know, they're not dictating to me, well, Jesse, we'll pay you, you know, 29 cents for these chickens. And if you're not willing to take that, you won't have any birds and your house will be empty and you can't pay your mortgage. So good luck. So I'm not in that situation where like I'm, I get to be in control and, you know, and, and also I need, I get to capture that full retail dollar, you know, since the food corporations are so monopolized, they are taking sort of a lion's share of the retail dollar and the farmer is, is getting sort of pennies because of their you know lack of leverage. So it's really important just in terms of the, the economics that if this wasn't, say, say this wasn't such a monopolized situation with sort of food businesses, then there might be actually a little better situation for farmers who want to sell into a commodity market, you know, where, they're, where they're basically they're just raising food and it's selling it to someone else who's going to bring it to market. But our situation is so monopolized and that means that the farmer is so powerless that they're in a really bad situation and they essentially get bad prices. So that's our situation. And for that reason alone, it's wise to think about going directly to the market so that you're not, you know, taken advantage of. The other reason is because part of our mission here is to do what I'm doing with you, which is to try and explain what is good about our farming model and how it's different than the status quo or the conventional system. So our best opportunity to do that is with directly with customers. And when they come to the farm and they see the fields and they see the animals in the fields and they see us doing the work and taking care of the animals and, and we get to tell them, you know, for those who don't come to the farm, we get to take pictures and videos and tell them about our work and how it's benefiting the land and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's us giving the customer the benefit of them learning about our model of farming and why it's good. And then of course we learn about our customers and their needs in this closer relationship where, you know, if without this relationship, I might be like, I'm just going to do whole chickens. And if you don't like it, tough luck. But if I get a lot of feedback from, you know, busy families, like we really want leg thighs and we really want breasts and, you know, we'll pay you to cut it up. You know, then I can like take that. Or if I explain to them, you know, hey, we only raise chickens from spring to the fall because they're on pasture and it's not good for the pasture or the birds to be out in the winter. So would you please hang with me and buy frozen birds through the winter and then we'll, we'll get back onto the fresh birds from April to uh, November. And, you know, here's why and here's why this is a better system. And please don't go buy those CAFO fresh chickens in the winter because they're not on pasture. And, you know, so I can help like, you know, it's a two-way street where we can both better understand each other's needs and, and, and they can better understand, you know, why we're doing what we're doing and, and why there's the, the things that might seem odd when you're coming from, you know, the, to the grocery store experience. So, yeah, so that means that, you know, we're selling out of our store on the farm and we're doing these neighborhood deliveries from Maryland down to central Virginia. And it's, and I guess the other thing that's nice about this is that the diversity work, you know, it's fun that we get to not just take care of animals and process animals and package meat and, and all that, but we also get to communicate with customers and make deliveries and help people in the farm store and, 
educate people. And so it's, you know, I think in terms of that sort of Christian understanding of the human person, that in terms of gauge, engaging sort of as many parts of the human person as possible, it really creates a work that I feel like is more humane in that it's more diverse and, and like I mentioned, sort of engaging different parts. You know, you're both out there, you know, physically, you know, using your body and moving shelters and animals to fresh ground. And at the same time, you're having to, you know, use the other parts of human nature that God's given us to say, communicate an idea to a customer who doesn't understand how we do it or to put together orders in the farm store or things like that. So um, anyway, those are, those are all um, reasons. I think that this business model is, is really critical. If someone were to come to me and say, Hey, I want to do exactly what you're doing. I just want to find someone I can sell it all to and, and, um, and not have to do any of the marketing. I would be, I would be very cautionary with them and say, you know what? Like, I'm not sure that this works unless you have a really special situation, unless you're willing to do some of the work of bringing your food to the market. And you have a a large team by now, right? Can you, and I know you have an internship program. Do you want to kind of put in a little plug for that and maybe uh, do you have any current interns who might be a kind of good exemplary story about what what that looks like yeah sure yep so yeah our team is myself uh jonathan elliott who's been with us for about five years ben fisk who was an intern with us in 2017 and he's been full-time with us for about a year uh, matt stalkup was an intern with us in 2018 he's been full-time with us since last summer and then we have um, a local uh, fellow, Brendan McGurk, who's a community college student that works part-time for us. And then we generally have anywhere from two to five interns at a time. And, um, you know, no no one on our team went to, you know, an agricultural school. You know, our, our typical sort of person is, you know, like a, a liberal arts person. And um, so, yeah, for example, just to think through some of our interns, one of our interns right now, Catherine, recently graduated from Villanova. Uh, studying sort of the great books. And um, another intern, Amanda, graduated from Hillsdale several years back and was working managing sort of a nonprofit in DC, but is wanting to go into food. And then another intern is uh, a young guy who's just finished up sort of homeschool high school and, you know, comes from a conservative uh, sort of Anglo Catholic family in, the, in central Virginia. And see here another intern uh comes just from roanoke college just in between her junior and summer year and um and she's studying environmental science so yeah and then you know and then uh you know jonathan for example he uh got his master's in theology from the dominican house of studies in dc and i somehow convinced him to come join up with us yeah so basically you know i guess all that to say is that for us the a sort of an understanding of of sort of what it means to be human in the in the proper human relationship to God and to and to creation and then to just sort of earnestly want to pursue that is maybe more of a, a common denominator among us as opposed to someone who you know grew up in a farming family or you know went to Virginia Tech or things like that. And I think, you know, these other ideals of, of just sort of uh, a, a more sort of Catholic or, or Christian understanding of um, the human person in relation to the world is maybe more compelling. Of course, you know, there's lots of people who, who you know, 
think about those things and would never want to do farm work or never want to have a farming career. But, um, yeah, but you know, I think those, those kind of thoughts and ideas for the right person who could see themselves doing that work is, you know, is sort of like the person that's right up our alley. And I know you have details about the internship on your website, but just, you know, really quickly, I know that it's kind of a curriculum too, right? Like what, what do interns learn? Yeah. So it's four months and interns live on the farm and basically they, you know, their primary benefit of the internship is the education. You know, I wish I had been able to intern somewhere before I started, but Liz and I were married and we had just had Josephine and I was trying to convince Joel Saladin, a polyface to allow us to come and intern there, but family housing just wasn't, you know, something they had. So that ruled that out. And for that reason, you know, I made the best of it and I, you know, would take day trips and I would, you know, read his books and I would make lots of mistakes, but there's ways in which I would be so much further along now if I'd had that simple experience. And what it means is that, you know, I made all kinds of mistakes that were expensive and that were very disheartening and frustrating that wouldn't have been necessary if I had been able to work at a full flung, full fledged working farm that was in this paradigm, this model. And basically, you know, I, I now have, you know, paid for all those mistakes and I've sort of pushed through all those frustrations, but I, it's not necessary. You know, if, if one's sort of station in life allows for it, it is a great way to cheat the learning curve. Because basically, you know, on one hand, it's very low risk. You know, you're not taking on debt and it's not a lot of time, but you can jump in the deep end. You know, even if you're like, well, you know, maybe I want to do farming. I think I'll get, you know, 50 chickens and see how I like farming. Well, that's not farming. You know, that's raising 50 chicks. And that's not really going to tell you if you like what it takes to farm to raise a full, you know, a full-time income. So, you know, this is a way to like really explore that idea. Like you can come here, jump in the deep end, see what, you know, a full-fledged, full-time income providing farm looks and feels like. And you can be like, yeah, that's awesome. I definitely want that. And now you're off and running. And, or you might have the opposite and be like, no, thanks. I think I'll just be a homesteader and keep a little backyard flock and, you know, do whatever other job. So that's one virtue of it. It's a very low risk way to explore the career in a field that it's very hard to have a low risk experience. You know, most farming requires land and infrastructure and investment and knowledge that's hard won. And, uh, and so it's hard to get a good picture without doing something like this. And then the other, the other thing is that, you know, basically, you know, me and others who have, you know, good internship programs, we have figured out the things that work and we've figured out the things that have not worked and you, someone else doesn't need to sort of relearn that um, on their own dime. They can just learn it on ours. So again, it, it really kind of cheats the learning curve. I, I can think of a handful of mistakes where, you know, for example, I didn't appreciate the heat's impact on our meat chickens. And the day before slaughter, I go out to the shelter, it's in the summer and I see, you know, four or $500 worth of chicken, just, you know, completely dead the day before slaughter. Cause I wasn't, you know, didn't know how to, didn't know to be concerned about that. And if I had just taken a couple measures, you know, I would have been saved that frustration and loss. So yeah, that, that's, that's a big one, um, is, is cheating the learning curve. And, you know, as an intern, the interns will learn very, very comfortable with sort of in the field operations. So, 
you know, when they leave the internship, raising meat chickens, taking care of laying hens, pigs, and to a lesser extent, cattle. That's more of a, that takes more time to learn. But uh, turkeys, they could leave here knowing like, you know what? I know how to do that. I know how to raise that poultry and those pigs. And to, to a certain extent, the cattle, I got that. Now, the scary part still might be I'm starting a business. I'm making some risk, some investment. And, you know, uh, I'm going to, you know, have to figure out, can I, can I make sales? Can I market? Can I keep up with it all? And that might be scarier, but you know, like what I had to do was like learn how to farm out in the field. I never run a business either. So I'm you know trying to learn how to farm and trying to learn how to run a business at the same time. And if I could just have been like, you know what, I got the farming down, like sure you'll make mistakes and things, but you know, generally I got this, that I'm not worried about. All I'm worried about now is like making sure I'm going to sell everything I raise or, or whatever else the, the business concern might be. So if you can just take one of those off your plate to extent, you're in such a better spot than I was. And, and then and that being said, you know, we do give sort of a business education to our interns where we'll have a weekly meal together. We'll just sort of open up the, the table to our interns and, and their particular interests. So some of them might be, you know, I'm really interested in just doing an operation that was beef and eggs. So, you know, let's, let's talk about how that would look and, you know, what my startup costs might be. And, you know, I'm going to be working part-time or I'm not going to be working, you know, an off job at all, off farm job at all, or whatever it might be. And we can walk through, okay, here's what your labor is going to look like. All right, here's your startup costs. Here's how soon you could, you know, pay back your startup costs. Here's the kind of market you should, you know, be expecting, you know, can you, can you find 20 families to buy from you or whatever it might be? So, you know, we do go through that on a weekly basis. And then I essentially am sort of an ongoing free consultant for our former interns, you know, as they get their operation started, they call me, text me, et cetera. And Hey, what was that fence charger you like to use? Or, you know, I got a chef asking me this question, what would you say about that? Or so that's the other, the other benefit of, you know, just having, again, that sort of just like classic mentor relationship, which is, I, you know, I know is, in my life has been so helpful with people like Joel and, and other people and just makes a ton of sense. Like these people know things, they've done things like, why not? Let's, you know, why not, you know, learn from them. Great. Well, we'll, we'll have a, we'll put a link to the site and particularly that program in the show notes. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Jesse Strait of Wiffletree Farm. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.